Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. The historian Patrick Wyman will fill us in on local elites, people who lord it over their neighbors but whom metropolitan elites don't give a thought to. And then Hien Nguyen will talk about queerness, social reproduction, and capitalism. When we think of the ruling class, we usually think of the denizens of Manhattan or Palo Alto. But there's an important social stratum, local elites, that don't get much attention. The historian Patrick Wyman wrote an excellent piece about the elite of his hometown, Yakima, Washington, on his substack, Perspectives Past, Present, and Future, last September. As he put it in that piece, people like the Yakima gentry exist in smaller cities around the country, quote, places where huge numbers of Americans live, but which don't figure prominently in the country's popular imagination or its political narratives. This kind of elite's wealth derives not from salaries, but from their ownership of assets, close quote. Last week, The Atlantic magazine posted an adaptation of Wyman's original piece to its website, which reminded me how impressed I was with the original when I read it months ago. So I thought he'd make a great interview, and I was right. Patrick Wyman is host of the Tides of History podcast and the author of The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World, published by 12 books in July. He has a PhD in history, but decided early on that academia was not for him. Patrick Wyman. When everybody talks about elites, we all think of, as you say in, your, in the beginning of your piece, you know, Beverly Hills or the Hamptons or the Billionaire's Row in Central Park South. But um, there are less spectacularly rich people who are also quite important out in what people like me who live in Brooklyn think of as the sticks. Who are these people? You call them gentry. Why? I call them gentry because I think that it draws a parallel to the past in the sense that it's sometimes much easier for us to see the power dynamics that shape a society when we're looking at past societies than it is when we're kind of embedded in our own. You know, it's the whole, if you're a fish, do you really realize that you're swimming in water type of thing? And the gentry classes have been a feature of pretty much any society that has um, strong property rights, that has any sort of inheritance from generation to generation, and especially ones that have an agricultural base. And Could you just define gentry? What, what do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. So basically, it's a, it's a property-holding elite class that is rooted in localities, as opposed to being rooted in the political center. So they derive their power from their ownership of property and from their control over the places where they reside. So they tend to be more numerous than the central political elite of say an empire. It's like, these are not the people who are living in the city of Rome who have really nice houses up on the Palatine Hill. These are the people who are living out in uh, Ostia and maybe have a, in, in the port of the city of Rome where they live out in the countryside and they've got a nice villa there. They are defined by their ownership of property and their control of small places. And what was their role in the Roman empire before we get to uh, the current day America? So in the Roman Empire, the gentry were a small city elite. So the Roman Empire was a it was an empire of cities. Um, that was how it was organized administratively. And so you had this gentry class that resided in these smaller cities, and they held the local administrative posts. They collected taxes. They did legal stuff. And then they also owned villas out in the countryside. So between those two things, they had tremendous economic power in the localities where they resided, and they also had political power. The difference between the Roman Empire and 
say the present day is that there was a very strong expectation in the Roman world that these local elites would do nice things for their communities. It was a strong sense that you were supposed to build nice buildings. You were supposed to put on games. You were supposed to do things for your constituents, that there was a back and forth kind of relationship there. And what was the relationship to each other and then to the center? So the relationship between each other was one of competition. Um, and I think this is a dynamic that anybody who's, who's lived in a, kind of an exurban or rural place in the United States has seen among your local elites is, is the competition. They're always trying to one-up each other in terms, of the, in terms of buying a new car, building a house, who can have the, the fanciest local philanthropic award named after them. That's the dynamic when it comes to each other between them. It's, it's one of competition. With the center, it varies. Gentries are not the political elite of the larger unit in which they reside. They may participate in it. In the United States, they're often elected to Congress. I mean, like the car dealer turned congressman is kind of the quintessential example of this type. But it's much more that their power is local. So as a group, they may exert tremendous influence over national politics, but individually, they're not necessarily all that powerful. It's only in their localities where they really are like the big man or big woman. I think often of the House of Representatives as being their natural body. <laughs> That's exactly right. And the House of Commons in the in the UK, especially, you know, when you look at Parliament in the seven in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, it is full of these kinds of landed gentry where they have what is essentially a hereditary seat that's passed through the hands of like a number of local families. You've got seats that are designated for particular areas and that it's always going to be one of these two or three families that sends somebody. Okay, so let's talk uh, about the current version in the United States. You uh, spent some time laying out uh, the details of the elite from your hometown, Yakima, Washington. Uh, describe Yakima and um, the people that are its local gentry. Yakima is based around commercial agriculture. If you've ever had an apple with a Washington sticker on it, that is the Washington Fruit Company. That is based in Yakima. The uh, Central Washington is a, is a heavily agricultural region. Now, there's a lot of money to be made in large-scale commercial agriculture. Like you can you can really make a tremendously nice living as long as you're the one that owns the owns the apple orchards, that owns the hop fields, uh, that owns the warehouses. It's an elite that's defined by ownership of these things. And so you have a very small but very wealthy and very locally powerful elite group at the top that builds big houses, that drives nice cars, that owns vacation homes elsewhere. They own homes in the San Juan Islands. They own homes in Maui. They own homes in Palm Springs or in, or, or in Scottsdale. But locally, they run fruit companies. Um, they run the construction companies that build things for the fruit companies. Uh, and they form this kind of tightly knit, largely hereditary, it's, it's multi-generational kind of elite. And then they have like a, a huge cadre of, uh, there, there's small numbers of people in the professional classes who work for them. But then they have a much, much larger class of largely migrant, or uh, largely migrant or immigrant farm workers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, it's there's not a, a native working class. It's um, imported largely from Latin America. Yeah, basically, it's uh, especially especially from Michoacan and Oaxaca. It, it's uh, like the my elementary school was about 50 percent native native Spanish speaking in Yakima. And that's pretty common there. And there's lots of people who are undocumented there. There's lots of first generation migrants. It's effectively run as, you know, everybody, every one of the fruit company owners has their own little fiefdom and they run it as such. This is the flatlands, right? This is um, to the east of the mountains. It's to the east of the mountains. These, these are the kind of big uh, river valleys that extend outward. And then when you get a little bit further east of where I grew up is when you get into the really flat parts and, the, and that's wheat country. And the, the, the wheat country there is a little more like what you would think of as the fake small farmers 
that dominate agriculture. There's some large-scale commercial agriculture there too. But when we're talking about fruit, hops, things like that, it tends to be a little closer to the mountains because that's where you get the really nice winter water runoff. What is climate change doing to it? It's not great um, because commercial agriculture, especially fruit crops, tend to be pretty sensitive to temperature variations. Cherries are kind of the primary example of this, where you know a few degrees outside the normal range at the wrong time of the year, and you've ruined millions and millions and millions of dollars worth, worth of your crop. I would say the gentry class is not all that invested in it. There was, a, there was a story earlier this year during the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest about the conditions that farm workers were being forced to work in. And one of the places that they focused on was the Yakima Valley, where you know it's migrant farm workers out there in 115 degree heat who, have to, who are paid not by the hour, but by the amount that they can pick. So, you know, you're really forcing people to get out there and work themselves essentially to, to the bone or, or even to, to the point of heat stroke in 115 or 120 degree heat. And what is the relation to uh, you know the metropolitan area over the mountains? Seattle is a very cosmopolitan, international, diverse place. Uh, how do the people of Yakima or this gentry of Yakima feel about uh, the tech elite <laughs> of Seattle? It's really funny because, oh, first of all, there's always kind of an inferiority complex, right? That you've got the, the big city on the other side of the mountains, but it's also the place where, um, especially 20 years or so ago, before online shopping became a huge thing, that's where they would go to shop. That's where they would go to go to the theater, to, to be cultured members of, of something other than a local elite. You would always go to Seattle. There's a really strong uh, kind of ideological difference between the two places because there's a sense that, well, everything in Washington is run from the west side of the mountains. Like they don't care about us. Like we don't have anything in common with them. And it's like, well, the tax revenue that's funding the roads that your fruit trucks drive to their warehouses on are, that money is coming from the tax base of, that resides west of the mountains. There's an inferiority complex. There's, there's always a sense that you can define yourself as a local elite in relation to the metropolitan area that's right there. So it's close enough to be proximate. It's close enough to be in people's minds. It's close enough to go there all the time if you want to. I mean, tons of these local gentry go to the University of Washington and spend four years in Seattle. But there's also always a sense of difference. Is this the kind of place that people leave? You did. Um, but is it generally the kind of place that people leave? Or you describe these, this gentry as being rather fixed to the land. How much out-migration is there? There's an enormous amount. A few years back, I went and I talked to the members of my high school class um, that I was close to. I went to a, I went to a school that had an international baccalaureate program, and there were about 20 people in my year who got the IB diploma. And this was in a, in a graduating class of 200 and something. I mean, there was so there was already a well, strong, that's small, <laughs> but the class started much bigger. The class started with more than 500. We had 242 graduate, but that's I mean, Yakima has incredibly high teen pregnancy rates, incredibly high dropout rates. So I was already a member of kind of a restricted restricted group within the group of my graduating class, which was already a restricted group in the sense that about half of the people that started in my freshman year didn't graduate. So that gives you a sense for, for some of the dynamics here. But of that group of 20 people, I think maybe two of them live in Yakima now. They all left. They went to college. They went to graduate school. And now they have jobs in finance or management consulting or their lawyers. They don't live in Yakima anymore because that kind of job, very few of them exist there. There are just not a ton of opportunities for people who are looking to rise into this professional class. And now there are many, many places like this around the country. Now you're talking about small cities, maybe 50, 100,000 metropolitan area, several times larger than that. But we're not talking giant conurbations. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they don't have to be. That's, that's one of the really interesting things about this, I think, is that the United States is a prosperous country. And if you own property, if you own a business, if you own a, a large agricultural concern, there's plenty of profit to be made. 
there is a lot of money out there and it tends to get in places like this where these people are able to essentially rig the game in their favor in terms of local politics, in terms of, in terms of local ordinances, in terms of what decisions get made, uh, then you can keep a pretty big chunk of that money for yourself. It's why these places can be so unequal and they can have a, a really highly visible, highly wealthy elite. Politically, I did look up uh, some of the contributions, political contributions from people of Yakima, compared them to Seattle. And the people in Yakima overwhelmingly gave uh, to Trump and Republicans. People in Seattle overwhelmingly gave to um, Biden, other Democrats. I imagine this is a big, important base for um, conservative politics, this kind of formation. It is. And, and in the piece that I wrote, I focused on on the Trumpish aspects of it, because I think that in a lot of ways, Trump is kind of their cultural avatar. More than anything else, Trump's great appeal to the conservative base was his open embrace of hierarchy. There was no question in Trump's mind that he and the people who supported him were at the were at the top of a natural pecking order. That particular way of looking at the, at the world and that open embrace of it really appealed to people who see themselves as the leaders of their local communities. In a material sense, these folks have been the backbone of the Republican Party for decades. Going back to Goldwater, I'm, I'm sure you could dig up quotes from this exact kind of person in the 60s when they're talking about their support of the John Birch Society. There was a kind of a sense of a, a psychological alignment between the way these folks understand the world with themselves at the top and a leader who really embraced the idea that some people are better than others. I read a paper uh, about the 2016 election that calls these sorts of people locally rich but nationally poor. I mean, poor being relative. They're not going to be in the Forbes 400 list. But in Yakima, they're a big deal. So I, what kind of money are we talking about? Is it enough to land you in the top 1%? I would say right on the margins of the top 1%. So we're talking about people who I think from year to year, they might feel the squeeze. Like I think that their holdings can be vulnerable to shocks in a way that those of oligarchs are not, and even in a way that those of the professional class are not. Something like a bad harvest can really mess you up. Let's say in a place like Yakima, if there's a really if there's a, a set of abnormal weather conditions, or there isn't a lot of water, the crop is bad, then nothing is getting built construction-wise, and you can have a you can have a kind of a trickle-down effect from whatever the core industry is through the supporting industries there, and the elite might think like, oh man, we're really in trouble. You know, our we're down fifty percent this year. You can have those kinds of fluctuations. So I think there's a sense of vulnerability there. I think there's also a sense that the nationally poor but locally rich, that they are not culturally central. And they understand that they're big fish in small ponds and that there is a much bigger pond out there in which nobody thinks about them. So I think that there's a cultural sense of being kind of dispossessed. Back in 2012, there was a huge controversy during the campaign uh, about Obama saying, well, you didn't build that. And, you know, there was this then there was a refrain at the 2012 Republican uh, National Convention. Like, we built it. We built it. That's exactly who these people are. They're the ones who are saying we built it. They see themselves in some really basic way as the backbone of the country. I'm speaking with the historian Patrick Wyman. Elite commentators frequently talk about Trump's working class base, but I think a lot of what they're thinking of as working class is precisely this stratum who may code as working class if you're a metropolitan elite. But uh, if you're living outside the metropolitan areas, you, you might see them as, as gentry. They have a very ambiguous position in the, the social hierarchy. 
Yeah. And I think you have to know them to understand their particular material language of expression. If you live in a metropolitan area and you don't see trucks all the time, you're not necessarily going to notice the difference between a a working person's truck that's $20,000 and a tricked out $80,000 truck that belongs to a son of a local real estate developer. You have to be kind of exposed to this stuff if you're going to understand that. But the $80,000 truck has rich symbolic value, right? It has rich symbolic value within this frame. Yeah. There's no question if you belong to this world that you know the $80,000 truck when it drives up. You have to understand as a cultural group that has its own modes of expression, they're just not ones that are necessarily immediately legible to, to people who are living in metropolitan areas and big cities and who are consuming much different media. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, there are certainly ancestors of, of this formation in right-wing politics, You know, the, the supporters of Goldwater, the John Birch Society. It seems, though, that they're just much richer than they used to be, much richer and more prominent. What's happened over the decades that's changed this profile of this gentry? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I necessarily have a good answer. I think it's because, I would have to say at a basic level, I think it's because all politics are national now in a way that they weren't necessarily before. I had a friend a few years ago who was in my PhD program who talked about this as the era of bad feelings, in contrast to the era of good feelings in the, the, the early American Republic. And his explanation for this was that we all know each other better now, and we can see what other people are doing, and so we're more aware of it. In the 50s or the 60s, you probably would never have heard what a local fruit company owner in Yakima was up to. Now that's one click away. It's possible for us living in a 21st century panopticon to be much more aware of what our fellow Americans are doing and to realize not only do we know what they're doing, but that we don't like it. You said earlier uh, that one bad harvest can ruin them. They don't have that much of a margin of, of for error. You know, if you're worth fifty billion dollars, you can lose half your fortune, and you still have a lot left. But you no, know, if you're if you're on the margins, and I imagine a lot of agricultural uh, operators are also have pretty heavy debts, you can be ruined pretty quickly. So, how much anxiety about falling? Is there? These are areas in which they're surrounded by people who have, you know, meth problems or opioid problems. Uh, the consequences of falling are very dramatic. So, how much anxiety is there about falling into that uh, lumpen proletariat? There's a tremendous amount of anxiety, and I think it's as much about as about the loss of prestige as anything else. It's that. To give them just a slight bit of the benefit of the doubt, I think it's easy to caricature all of them as as being kind of like corrupt local gentry and the kind of people who are at the bar of a country club making passes at the waitresses. And that is absolutely a part of this kind of cultural milieu. There are also people whose families have been established for generations and they've got their names on buildings and it and the place means a lot to them. So I think for people who fall into more into that category, there's a real sense of loss that like that, that there's a thing here that they have participated in building and they don't want to lose that. So I think there's there's a kind of a psychological fear at the same time is there's an awareness that the world's changing around them. You know, you're, maybe you have to change crops. Maybe you've got to sell some of your property. You've got to pivot to something new. There's a local family in Yakima that, whose kids I went to school with that was a fruit family and they have pivoted to winemaking and they've done really well at it. They make good wine. But they have maintained their position in the local hierarchy, but it's easy to see how in an alternative world, they don't make that pivot and the family business falls apart. And that happens. There are former fruit families that that are no longer wealthy who are around there and everybody knows them because the generational memory, when you're rooted in a local place, goes back two, three, four, five generations. You remember the stories, you hear the stories, you know the families. It's a much different kind of dynamic. And so you're aware of the prospect of failure, I think, in a way that if you're a lawyer and your friend and one of your friends doesn't make it, it's not there. It's not present in the same way. 
And I'd imagine that this is a rich audience for Trump's style of resentment and anxiety and contempt for those below him. I mean, he he's, did quite an act of getting people to identify with this New York billionaire, people who are you know far from either his wealth or lifestyle. But he, he did manage to uh, bring them along into his um, vortex of resentment, right? This is, is, is that part of the appeal um, to a, a formation like the, the Yakima Gentry? Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think the affect is the is a big part of it. Like that, Trump, despite the fact that he's a billionaire, is the most outstanding example of a particular kind of local elite. New York is full of billionaires with international interests, but Trump's interests were always rooted. They're always it's always real estate, right? Like it's something real that you can hold on to. And in a, like no matter how much there was a financial house of cards that was propping that up, there was always a perception that. He owned real things. And I think the idea that you own real things is a big appeal to this particular class because their wealth is rooted in the ownership of actual physical things and land that you can walk on in the physical produce of labor. Like that there's a very straightforward relationship between the money that they make and a visible output. Trump for them could embody that in some particular way. And there was also like, like I mentioned earlier, his open embrace of hierarchy. The idea that some people are better than others, I think on a really basic level appeals to people of this class because it meshes with a worldview in which they are the ones sitting at the top of a local hierarchy, handing out wages to those below them, handing out their largesse in the form of philanthropy to their communities. There's a sense of, I wouldn't call it noblesse oblige, by any sense. But the idea that they are supposed to be recognized by by those below them runs very deeply at the heart of, of what it means to belong to this group. What about you know the vulgarity of Trump, of sticking in the eye of, of the, the metropolitan elites? Does that appeal as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Some of these folks that I knew who became wealthy essentially through decades and decades and decades of, of what they would call their own hard work. Now, obviously, we can see the contingency involved in that. We can see government programs that funneled money to them. We can see uh, their position in a broader economic boom. But to somebody like this who thinks, I've worked my way up, I've spent my entire life working on job sites, I've gotten my hands dirty, I've gotten my boots dirty, for somebody like that, and there are a lot of folks like that in the United States, Trump's vulgarity is part of it. He, the, in that world, that's just how people talk. It's hard not to see a country club as kind of a formative physical and social space for folks like this, where like, that's how guys in on the eight from the 18th green talk when they're in the bar, they exchange vulgar comments about the waitresses who are about the waitresses who are working there. They talk about who's having sex with whose wife. That's part of this kind of local elite milieu in, in ways that would be less acceptable to a cosmopolitan. How does this stratum fit in with the, the tales of meritocracy that uh, metropolitan elites or professional class like to tell themselves? It doesn't fit very well. There are people who work their way into this gentry class. That is the ideological basis that allows it to exist. It's, you know, you can build a business in this country. You can build something useful. And if you do, you will be materially rewarded for that. That's the story that, that these folks tell themselves is that, you know, I've worked for everything that I have. Even if, well, you know, I was the third son of a, of a fruit baron, and even though my older brother turned out to be a wastrel, I took over the company and I did great with it. That's not the same thing as I built a company from the ground up, but I think it's easy for those two things to elide themselves in the minds of these folks. So in their minds, I think that there's that they're still participants in the meritocracy. I think from the perspective of a putatively meritocratic professional class elite, especially, um, there's a sense that they haven't earned it because they didn't have to go to school. They don't have to flaunt credentials 
in quite the same way. Their credential is their ownership of a business or their ownership of property, their wealth, as opposed to having to point to diplomas on the wall or having written a piece in the Atlantic or something like that. They don't have to do that uh, to show that they to show that they've reached the top of society. So I think there's a kind of a natural tension between the two, uh, between those two groups. It's a tension in terms of the values that they hold. It's a tension in terms of where they live. And it's also a tension in terms of, uh, in terms of their material interests in the broader context of American society. They don't have to go to Yale Law School to tell the rest of the world they're important. No, they don't. That's the kind of thing that on a basic level can be hard for a, merit a meritocratic member of the elite to grasp. And vice versa, the idea that you would need to go to Yale Law School to be a person who matters would seem absurd to a member of this local elite. Like they might recognize the value of it, but I think that the idea that you've got to do that, like, well, why don't you just start a business? <laughs> that's an old American type though, isn't it? Oh yeah. And that's the thing is like, I, I think the types have been around for a long time. The professional class has been around for a long time in the United States, even if it's kind of ascendant in the 21st century, culturally and, and, and maybe economically, the gentry have been around for a long time too. You can, you can find these folks in Augusta, Georgia in 1860. You can find them in, uh, in Ohio in 1920. These folks have been around. It's just the context, the, the kind of outer context changes. As long as you have local hierarchies uh, and local power and the kind of system that we do, you're going to end up with these kinds of folks on top. Are you likely to find them at a Coke uh, Network fundraiser? That's a good question. They're much more likely to give directly to the candidates that they like because they have a much more, in some ways, a much more realistic sense for how political power operates than, than members of that meritocratic, meritocratic professional class do, where they want to see and be seen with the politicians. They want to hand the check directly to them. The sense of a quid pro quo, um, I think, is much more present for this kind of local elite. They want to buy something and know what they're getting for it. If we think about what the constituency of the, especially Republicans in the House of Representatives actually is, it is local alliances of car dealers and beverage distributors and the agricultural elite of Yakima. That's who is funding these politicians. They're much more likely to be involved in that kind of direct face-to-face -face type of stuff than, than working through a kind of a national network. That was Patrick Wyman, host of the Tides of History podcast and author of The Verge, published by 12 Books in July. You can find his article on the Atlantic Magazine's website and the original on his substack, patrickwyman.substack.com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. was some of High Tech Redneck, a 1993 song by George Jones. Next, queerness and capitalism. What's the relationship between capitalism and non-normative sexuality? Earnest class first types find these sorts of questions unhelpful, distracting even. 
But the system can't go on without what's known as social reproduction, all the unpaid work of households and communities that produces the next generation of workers and gets the living generation to the workplace every morning. Historically, capitalism has relied on the heterosexual family, particularly its women members, to do that work. As definitions of families are stretched in many directions, and more of us aren't doing that coupling and reproduction thing, can the system continue to adapt? What do the pressures of reconciling the market and domestic life do to our minds and bodies? What would a serious agenda of queer emancipation do to capitalism? Capitalism is adapted to gay marriage. How much more can it take? Here with some answers to these questions is Duk Hen Nguyen. He's a graduate student in economics at the University of Massachusetts and has a paper on the topic in the Review of Radical Political Economics. Hien Nguyen. So why should capital care about queerness at all? As long as they can make money, why do they care? There's two answers to that. The first one is capital should care about queerness because they can make money off of us. And that's the reason why they have been caring about us for the last little while. But a deeper reason, a more structural reason is queerness as, as part of, of sexuality provide the social reproduction condition for capital. It is that what keep capitals and capitalisms going require a particular kind of workers and particular kind of reproductions going on. And all of that has a lot to do with sexuality and a lot to do with queerness. Yeah, there's this uh, debate, of course, uh, you use uh, Judith Butler's work uh, pretty extensively in your um, article and her debate with Nancy Fraser. So could you lay out the terms of that debate and then uh, um, explain how it's relevant to, to the issue at hand? This is a debate that I think happens around 1997. Uh, funny, I think it started a conference at UMass Amherst as well. Yes, I was at that conference, actually, and I heard Judith Butler deliver that merely cultural paper, and I have to say it changed my life. <laughs> yeah, I used to be one of those, you know, like rigid, class-only Marxist types, and I had been very skeptical of her. I hadn't read much of her work, but I heard her deliver that paper and said, hmm, a lot to think about here. I got home, I emailed her, uh, she sent me a copy of the paper, uh, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, like I said, it really changed the way I thought. So, Oh, wow, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very nice moment. <laughs> anyway, can, uh, can you continue. That conference becomes somewhat of a legendary, but you know, I have to say that for my generation, the knowledge of that conference has been entirely lost. Nobody that I work with uh, in my cohort kind of even know about that conference took place at our university. Oh, wow. That's amazing because it was a big deal. It was the great Marxism versus postmodernism. That was the, the caricature of what it was all yeah, about. Yeah, it was. It was a big deal. And, you know, and then it, I think it's a sad reflection that, uh, it, that the knowledge is die out. You know, we, we've been silo. The Marxists do the Marxist thing, the postmodernists do the postmodernist things. And nobody even remembers what had happened before. Basically, Nancy Fraser wrote this article and then later on become a book. She suggests that there's two kinds of injustices happening. One she called maldistributions and the other one is misrecognition. And, you know, it's a very clean conceptual scheme. You know, you have on the one hand issues with distribution. You have economic injustice, exploitation. So those are the kind of thing that have to do with economy. And the way to overcome them is to create a better system of distribution, redistribution. And then on the other side, you have all the issues that have to do with recognizing someone as equal, you know, sort of what she called the cultural battle and injustice. And the way to overcome the injustice is to recognize people's values and worth as, as equal to one another. 
for Fraser, it's very important to keep those two things separate because she's worried that if we misidentifying an injustice as redistribution or as an appropriate remedy is recognition, then we might not be able to actually do anything about it. And she's also worried about mutual interference between these two kinds of injustice. And just take LGBT people as an example. She's worried that if we so focus so much on um, LGBT issues, it's marked them off as a socially distinct group and it's prevent claim for redistribution, for example. Well, we know that LGBT people are discriminated against in the labor market. Uh, it's kind of hard to keep those realms separate. It is, it is. And and Fraser wouldn't deny that. You know, I, I think Fraser say very clearly in the book that practically all injustices is manifest on both ways, both on the economic axis and the cultural axis. So it requires both redistribution and recognition. But very importantly for her, the economic discrimination for LGBT people in the labor market is rooted in their identity as a cultural subject. They are discriminated because they deem not worthwhile as a, as a subject. So at the end of the day, it is rooted in recognitions and the way to overcome the discrimination in the labor market is not through you know, legislation to ensure that fair wages, but actually to teach people that LGBT people are just like you and, and I, they're the same kind of workers, they deserve, they deserve the same kind of employment practices, they, they shouldn't be discriminated. That's I was never convinced that that persuasive work would work very well. The strictly capital labor relation, workers can go on strike, withhold their labor and uh, force the issue. It's not easy to see how you could uh, get people to treat their fellow humans as fully human. I, I agree with you. I find that something is missing in Fraser's schema. And I think that's probably what Butler's take her to task over as well. What was Butler's response? She picked out one, just one particular dimension of uh, Fraser, which is her characterizations of the queer struggle as a merely cultural issue. You know, she, she's very is offended by that, I imagine. From Butler's perspective, queer struggle is both about cultures and about economy, precisely for the reason that you and I were just, you know, started to, to talk about, that, that you cannot separate those two things. Queer struggle is a political economic struggle because queer people are implicated in the structures of the market and the way capitalism work. It's not so much that LGBT people are ignored or you know, treated unfairly. It is that they have to be treated unfairly. They have to be suppressed in order to maintain the normal uh, heterosexual workforce that work for capital. So there is no way for us to, you know, ask people to recognize LGBT worker as an equal subject without fundamentally change the labor market, fundamentally change the functions of uh, capitalist production. And that's, that's Butler's perspective. And the reason that they have to be excluded or treated differently is because uh, that's essential to maintaining heteronormativity, the normal straight family, right? Which Butler and others see as really essential to the reproduction of capitalism as a social system. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think this is such a valuable and very important insight that the linkages between sexuality, the linkages between what we think of as sexuality and the production system is through social reproduction. There is a certain kind of you know, sexuality that is more conducive to reproduction than other. There's a certain kind of you know, sexuality, like what I call queer sexuality, that are actually challenge and threatens the normative reproduction regime. And for that reason, you know, they have to be kept in control. They have to be suppressed. They could be, as we see, selectively allowed to assimilate it into the mainstream. But by and large, 
the subversion potentiality of queer sexuality has to be suppressed. Otherwise, it will, it will destabilize the family, it destabilize the gender division of labor, and it spells trouble for capitalist reproduction. I want to get back to the social reproduction angle in a second, but it always struck me as strange that Marxists were so uninterested in marriage and family issues because Engels made such a big deal out of it. It wasn't the social reproduction angle. It was about the transmission of property. But to Engels, bourgeois marriage is very central to bourgeois society. Yet uh, it seems that a lot of Marxists uh, since then have dropped it as 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 a matter of concern. Yeah, and I, I find it strange too, and I don't know enough about, you know, the history of thought of Marxism, how it has evolved throughout the course of the 20th century. But I would add this, not all Marxists has ignored that subject. There's a strong, you know, and persistent number of, of especially the feminist Marxists that has consistently raised the issues of family, raised issues of women and gender as critically important to both the, the theoretical and the practical discourse about capitalism. But by and large, yes, I think you're right. Mainstream Marxists don't think very much about gender and the marriage and family. They think a lot about about, exchange and how the function of the economy and the factory. And I wonder sometimes if that still reflects some of the deeply rooted gender divisions among Marxists. If I transport myself back to 1996, it seemed as if, uh, to many people, uh, gender and sexuality were distractions from the real issues. And you still hear this now, I think, in in some circles, uh, that they're distractions from the real issues, which are just about these kinds of material redistributionist issues, the relations of exploitation, labor market, ownership, and that sort of thing. So concerns about what we've been talking about are seen as peripheral or secondary or, even worse, a distraction from those really central issues. Yes, even counter-revolutionary event. And, you know... The bourgeois decadence argument. Exactly. (laughs) And it hasn't gotten any better, you know, because part of the the, the neoliberal and postmodernist condition is that that silos in knowledge production. People who think a lot about gender and sexuality end up in, you know, specific disciplines like women and gender study or queer theory that they don't really engage with the masses literature and vice versa. People who care about, you know, taking a stand against capitalism and all of this corrosive effect on, on, on society and people don't really dig deep into questions of marriage and family and gender and sexuality. And there's not a whole lot of cross-talking and collaboration. Now, back to social reproduction. There's certainly been a growth in interest in this topic in the last five years or so. Uh, how does it fit uh, into, into your inquiry? Social reproduction is the bridge. I came into through this inquiry with two very clear interests. On the one hand, I want to think about sexuality and understand it, especially in the context of our contemporary capitalist society. On the other hand, I have a very strong interest in capitalism and understand its functionings and understand how to challenge it, dominance and oppression. Social reproduction is what allows for capitalist production to take place, what allows it to keep going what kind of social reproduction condition that's required for capitalism. And one of those conditions allow me to theorize about sexuality as, as part of that. We're not saying that heteronormativity and heterosexuality is required for capitalism. Capitalism can work with a lot of different kinds of bodies and a lot of different kinds of sexuality. But the one that we know historically has relied on a heteronormative sexual regime with a very clear division of labor between the gender in the traditional form of family that is still ongoing and privileged until today. The reliance on that particular kind of family and this particular kind of heteronormativity has implication for queer people. Queer people has been suppressed, queer people have been oppressed, and queer people have been marginalized because of that. 
So the implication is in order to really truly have a fluid gender and sexuality, in order to have like a queer utopia, so to speak, we have to disrupt capitalism as we know now. Queer revolutionary cannot be achieved without an economic and political revolution either. Reading this, these debates from the mid-1990s, I'm struck by how things have changed to some degree. Gay marriage, for example, seemed at that point unimaginable. And now capitalism, capitalist society have learned to live with a certain kind of gay marriage, right? It's, I think you say, homonormativity now has joined the, joined the club, right? Yeah, yeah. I recognize the tensions. And that's one of the questions that I try to answer too is, theoretically, you know, it makes sense in my head that queer revolutionary is not compatible with capitalism as such. So how do we then explain, you know, the progress that we have seen? And, you know, I, I, I don't want to minimize or, or dismiss the, the significant progress and achievement that we have had in the last 20 years or so. And instead, I think it points to what we all know about capitalism is incredible flex, flexibility, its ability to adapt and to take on these new challenges, especially you know, if, if we think about this debate in the 80s and the 90s as queer challenge to capitalism, then what we see is how capitalism has responded, how neoliberal capitalism has responded by co-opting part of that queerness. Gay marriage, a version of it is allowed because they agree to assimilate into the mainstream family. They agree to do the social reproduction need for capitalism. They are the richer one, they're the more educated one. And you can see the same thing even with uh, having children and adopted children and assisted reproductive technology. These are accessible to folks who are richer, folks who are more middle class, who are, you know, for the lack of better word, who are bourgeois. Whereas, you know, queer workers, queer poor people, queer people of color, their struggles is still very much the same as it is in the 1990s, even if it's called by different name back then and different name today. I recognize, I think there's that, that level of cooptation on part of capitalism to deal with the queer challenge of the 90s. I'm speaking with the economist in training, Hien Nguyen. What kind of queer challenge would capitalism really have a hard time assimilating or adapting to? What would be a really truly revolutionary queer challenge to this system? Oh, that's a very interesting question, and I'm not sure I have a good answer. But the first thing that comes to my mind is the kind of challenge that really unravels social reproduction. If we look around today, so much of reproductive labor is being done for free, basically, unpaid reproductive labor, and capitalism has relied on it, right, as, as, as a way to keep it going. So I think the kind of challenge that really make people ask, what is to be a woman and what is it to be a man? You know, why do I have to do all of this work and pay? Well, the moment people start asking those questions, I think that would spell a lot of trouble. You know, the moment when, you know, a woman said to, for example, why do I have to do all the cooking and cleaning in the house and pay? Can I make a claim from the state as a remuneration for my labor? It's like the wages for housework movement of the 70s returns. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, I think, many, I think the, the, the current battles for universal basic income in many ways is the repeat of that wages for housework campaign in the 70s, except that it's a lot more inclusive, it's a lot more radical, and it's, it's a lot more universal, as the name implies. People live under capitalism and they take in for granted so many things, including their identity, their sexuality, what it means to be a certain way in this world. And they just do it unthinkingly and not question it. Why are we doing it? A really revolutionary part of it is that making people ask why all of these institutions exist. How does this serve the social reproduction need of capital? 
and not me, right? And I think that if we can make people asking, what has to change so that I can meet my own social reproduction need and not the needs of capital, that would be the kind of queer revolutionary questionings that capital would have a very hard time to call because it would practically undermine the social reproductive structures of capitalism. Now, you make a couple of interesting points towards the end of the essay. First of all, you quote Rosemary Hennessy saying that uh, capitalist production in the neoliberal era is characterized by habitual mobility, adaptability in every undertaking, the ability to navigate among possible alternatives and spaces, a cultivation of ambivalence as a structure of feeling. As you point out, there's something queer about that kind of fluidity, mobility, um, instability. As you say a little later on, uh, on the other hand, someone who's queer is expected to also um, get with the program of stable household relations in order to uh, keep the machine of social reproduction working. So how do we navigate this tension between this kind of queer personality the capitalist worker is supposed to be, uh, at the same time, one at home, he, she, or they are supposed to adhere to the straight and narrow in this sort of way? Consumption comes to the rescue. Consumptions provided the facade that hold these contradictions together. The queer worker have to balance this by limited the amount of flexibility and commitment that they have to their work so that they just earn enough money to bring enough consumptions and use the consumption as a thing to hold the straight, narrow family unit together. To translate it, you know, to the more mainstream language is the challenge of finding work-life balance. And that's get me to my second answer is that a lot of us, I think, by and large, are not able to, to resolve this contradiction. People are extremely unhappy with their work and their family. People find it very difficult to find the quote-unquote work-life balance. And that's for a reason, because that balance is basically a fundamental contradiction of contemporary capitalism. You are expected to be one kind of person, one kind of subject on the work and you know, all the commitment going there. And then you expect to be a different kind of person at home you know, to adhere to all of these normative family values. And the tension there, some of this can be resolved partly by consumptions, but, but either that is fundamentally contradictory. Because of the nature of capitalist labor today, the straight person in some kind of heterosexual relationship finds it very difficult to maintain that, that stable domestic life. So the, the contradictions, even apparent for the straight person who's living an apparently normative life, the connections between these two worlds, the home and, and the workplace, the effective realm and the labor market, people don't normally draw the connections between those two worlds, but they're extremely important. Yes, I agree with you. And, you know, the... Again, this has come back to the idea of social reproduction, right? The, the family, you know, the quote-unquote, the domestic sphere is what enables the productions going on. But it is in the background. It is put there in the background purposefully and for a reason. It's meant to be kept silent. It's a hidden abode that capitalists doesn't want us to look into. And a lot of us don't think about it because of that reason. The contradiction between the neoliberal capital demand for what kind of worker you ought to be and the contemporary normative family, it's not restricted to any kind of sexuality, any kind of sexual orientation and gender identity. As you say, you know, the straight and the queer workers face the same kind of demand and they face the same kind of tensions and unresolvable contradictions for that very reason. I call the, the kind of workers that, that Hennessy is describing a queer, not because, and not referring to their sexuality as such, but it's referring to the, the kind of gender fluidity and sexual fluidity that capital demand them to have for, for these days. 
they have to be able to flexible, to be ambivalent and to be disconnected from community and histories and home and family in order to become the perfect ideal neoliberal worker. And that's a queer part about it. But yes, going back to, to your comments about um, people don't really think much about the connection between the home and the workplace. And it's a shame because a fundamental insight of social repression is that what happens in the home is what provides the, the condition of possibility of what happened in the workplace. I'm reminded of the work of James O'Connor. He made a couple of points along these lines. One is that, that, that capitalism undermines the conditions of its reproduction. So we're talking what it does to family life. The demands of the workplace really erode it. He also applied this to uh, the natural environment, that capitalism destroys it. This has really come forward during the COVID crisis when people have found unbearable tensions between work and their home lives, but without any kind of deep understanding of what's going on. We've been living through over the last year and a half or so a real-world demonstration of the importance of social reproduction, yet we're not drawing the proper lessons from it. No, if anything, everyone seems to be so eager to go back to the normal. We see the contradictions of contemporary capitalism just played out into our life. We see the enmeshments of work and life. We see the challenge of doing social reproductions. And all we see is such a mess that it, it's become so much that people actually just want to escape from it and go back to the good old day, you know, the pre-COVID time. I know a lot of scholars are actually thinking about what you know, the return to the normal look like and what it's mean for genders and what it means for reproductions. And um, I don't know, I, I don't have a clear answer for myself. I think a lot of you know, what happens depends on what we are going to do about it. But looking around, I don't think a lot of people want to do anything about it. We just want to go back to the quote unquote normal. What's funny, so many leftists have looked to like economic crisis and collapse as a way of promoting the revolution. But in, in a lot of those cases, people just want to go back to the old way of doing things. It's not necessarily a radicalizing stimulus to have things enter crisis. They just want to go back to the way things used to be in the good old days. And uh, I wonder if COVID is doing the same to us. I think so. I think so. Because the challenge of, you know, taking advantage of a, of a, of a crisis to promote revolutionary idea is we have to be able to provide an alternative. We have to be able to draw people away from the abyss and suggest this is, you know, if we do these things, if we take action now, there will be a better future. It will be better than the crisis and it will be better than the good old day. There's no reason to go back to the good old day. Analytical thinkers and theorists are actually, you know, we are more prone to analyzing what's wrong with the here and now and not so good at creatively drawing what could happen and what could be a better future to look forward to. So what would your better future look like? Practically, I, I really hope that the idea for universal basic income will take, will take more root and gain more public support. If done right, it would provide a level of protections for people. So to meet, for, for individuals to meet their social reproduction needs. A key part of the capitalist labor contract is you have to work or you have to starve. And that become the fundamental sort of oppressive relations that created ongoing wages, exploitations. Universal basic income is one way to try to loosen up that chain, to loosen up the shackle and allow people some freedoms and room for creativity to provide people with the basic dignity of being able to live, being able to socially reproduce themselves. I think if it's done right, it could open up a lot of radical revolutionizing projects that are just unable right now because people... A lot of folks that just care about, you know, getting food on the table and reproducing themselves day after day. It would also reduce the pressure for uh, people to uh, choose domestic living arrangements that they might not if, they were, uh, if the economic compulsion were removed. 
Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. A lot of people I know, you know, seeing in a lot of workplace, you know, there's still a very rigid, so, you know, socially constructed gender norms, you know, you have to be a certain way and people were there in order to work, in order to have a job, they cannot explore their genders and, and sexuality, for example, right? So, so having that pressure taken off in the way you phrase it, it's a way to really eventually have a diverse, flourishing, all kind of gender and sexuality to the point of who cares anymore. That was Hien Nguyen. That 1996 Rethinking Marxism conference at UMass, which we talked about early in the interview, was quite dramatic. It was the peak of the so-called science wars of the 90s and the great Marxism versus postmodernism battles. There were lots of furious polemics. The session featuring Judith Butler was held on my birthday, December 7th, and when she started talking, I was against all that mumbo-jumbo, and by the time she finished, I was rethinking not just Marxism, but lots of other things as well. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Phoebe Bridgers, in a freshly released cover of Bo Burnham's That Funny Feeling. Proceeds from the sales of this song in Bandcamp will go to Texas abortion funds. Till next week, bye. Surgeon General's pop-up shop Robert Iger's face Discounted sea prop Bugles take on race Female Colonel Sanders Easy answer, civil war The whole world at your fingertips The ocean your door The live action Lion King The Pepsi halftime show 20,000 years of this Seven more to go Carpool karaoke Steve Aoki Logan Paul Gift shop at 